Hello, everybody. This is Dan Woods here for the Early Adopter Podcast at RSA 2019. I'm sitting with Andrew Peterson, the CEO of Signal Sciences, and I'm about to ask him all of the questions that we've been asking people here about cybersecurity topics. But before I do, I'd like Andrew to explain what Signal Sciences does so everybody can understand where he's coming from. For sure. Uh, glad to be here, Dan. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, uh, Signal Sciences, uh, it is a, we have a next generation web application firewall um, product and a RAS product. And what that actually means in non-analyst um, speak is if you have a website, you have a mobile application, or you have API systems that you're building uh, in your company and you want to protect the data that's behind that, we have software that sits in line to be able to identify where attackers are actually attacking you in the first place. We block those attacks and then we give that data back to the technology and security teams to be able to help them better protect the application in the future. And when you say RAS product, what, what so explain that acronym and what yep, it means? Yep. So, so, so Gardner came up with this acronym. Um, uh, it's not it doesn't really roll off the tongue uh, super well, but it's runtime application self protection. Um, this is it's basically uh, kind of an evolution of where WAF I think has gone in the past. WAF is uh, web application firewall. Um, and it's, it's basically a new way to um, get a little bit closer to the actual code execution on the application side um, to understand some context around what the application is doing to better protect it. And the way I understand it is it's, it's not that you have to be programmed in as much as other approaches to this are. So you don't have to have developers uh, and, and rely on them to program you in. You can actually sort of uh, set a, a, a sort of a fabric over the surface of the application, sort of like the way people do A-B testing, and, 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 and you can detect a lot of the attacks that way. Uh, that's correct. I mean, one of the big challenges, I think, in our space specifically is it's not just what um, security value you're giving or what type of visibility you're able to give in terms of types of attacks that you're covering, but it's how do you even get installed in the first place. And the, a lot of the, the, the techniques and the other tools that are in the space have been so heavyweight that it creates so much um, kind of uh, pain in the process of trying to get something installed that it just ends up being non-scalable in the first place. So we, our sort of experience before uh, starting the company was actually being in-house and building security technology at a company called Etsy in the past. And so we really got a pretty hands-on understanding of the trade-offs you need to make between the practical realities of um, you know, actually getting something installed versus the you know, pie-in-the-sky ideal of what you would want um, in, in a perfect world. Got it. Well, now let's get to the questions. Um, I have three questions I've been asking everybody and then three bonus questions if we have enough time. <laughs> Great. Um, the, the first question is about zero trust. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, there's so many people talking about zero trust now. You know, we can, I think, trace the, the idea back to Google's new philosophy of Beyond Quark mm -hmm. and the way that they built that out inside of Google mm -hmm. using all the proprietary stack that they created. Yep. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, and the, the bottom line is that it, zero trust in that vision envisions a perimeterless world, mm -hmm. or at least a world where the perimeter is not that important. Correct. And every asset, every person has to establish who they are and then when they ask for uh, ability to access something, they are granted or denied, you know, based on what is known about them. Yep. And so, uh, it's a very, you know, clean and nice way of, of thinking of security because if the person's inside the company, they are protected the same way as they're when, when they're in a Starbucks. Correct. And, you know, you get this very consistent uh, set of, of, of high quality protection. The problem is, though, that you know we're living in this world in which the perimeters still exist, mm. and the 
the, there's no one product that delivers what Google is delivering in its massively custom-designed stack. You have some vendors doing parts of it, some vendors doing parts of it, other parts of it, and then you have people interpreting what is meant by zero trust in completely different ways. How have you seen people, what do you think it means in practice? And is it just becoming another additive responsibility for like better authentication sure. or for better authentication aligned with you know, SD-WAN sort of uh, routing? Uh, you know, what, what do you think it really means and, and, and what should it mean? Yeah, well, and this is, you know, it's funny because Google is sort of the poster child for this stuff. Um, but I'd imagine even a company like Google is starting to uh, feel what it's like as they're starting to bring in, if you start doing acquisitions, you have any company that's of any size and you do, you do acquisitions where you're bringing in new tech stacks, they're starting to realize like whatever they built that was homegrown doesn't necessarily apply immediately to something that's new that you're bringing in the first place. So even the poster child I think is going to be struggling with some of the complexities that exist in sort of the reality <laughs> when, you, when you go out and you try to install um, you know, philosophical uh, like ideas into sort of the real world and and you know you already said this in the first place but when, when, I, when we talk to companies we talk to customers about what zero trust means to them and this model around it it's it comes down to there's three different areas there's users there's devices and then there's applications um, and and certainly like our focus has always been on the application piece so that's really where we we've interacted with co companies a bunch but th it's really flipping the model on its head for people where in the past an application, I'll just help to kind of describe that a little bit more. Users and, and devices is pretty straightforward, right? It's, it's people within a company, they might be using their phones, their personal phones to be able to access company information. In the past, that never happened. Um, so now we need to kind of figure out, you know, if you are beyond this perimeter, how are you actually solving and, and solving for security of that device and of that user? The application piece means companies are developing internal applications that may hold all of their customer information on it that is an admin console that the that the people inside these companies can actually access to be able to you know service their customers and help help um, you know solve customer service problems or any of that historically because that's always been inside the perimeter they've never thought to have to secure those things right and so now because you know people are starting to think about it in a zero trust way which I actually think is smart because you know, whether or not you um, are inside or outside the perimeter, like you should be thinking about these assets as, as pretty critical assets. Because when it comes down to it, are you more worried about your, your consumer-facing application getting, uh, getting compromised or your internal one? Where the internal one, you have all these controls about being able to actually change uh, different user settings and stuff for those users. So in some ways, the internal applications are the area where they've invested the least from a security perspective and actually are the most valuable from an attacker's perspective. And so this is where, you know, regardless of if they're full sale adopting, you know, the philosophy around zero trust or not, I think it really is smart to kind of raise awareness of the fact that you can't just assume that your perimeter is completely un, um, you know, unbreakable and you should be starting to understand what are people doing on both internal applications and external applications. So from your perspective, yep. like uh, a zero trust style type of use of your product would be to use a web application firewall and use your RAS technology on an internal application. Absolutely. So we have customers that are using it equally on external ones as they are on internal ones. And again, 
the internal ones are new to them. They've never bought a WAF or, or some type of protective technology for an internal application because they just assumed it was protected. But now, <laughs> now that the world's changing around this, I think they're really starting to see like, hey, this is actually potentially a more vulnerable and more important application to actually provide protection over than any of the rest of the apps that we've historically protected. Have you had anybody get uh, some serious surprises once they put your technology up? Well, absolutely. I mean, like the, the difference in, in this would be the use case is if you have an app that's sitting on the internet that's a consumer-facing application, you're kind of assuming that you're being attacked all the time. So the noise of what's there you're looking at that data very differently. If you have an internal app, you're not assuming it's being attacked on a regular basis. So if you see any type of attack signal, that immediately triggers some type of alert that somebody should look at, right? So there are different use cases for how you look at it, but those have been the surprises where people are like, hmm, we have people logging into our internal apps from countries that we do not have an employee from. Right, like right. That, that, that's a, it's a pretty easy one to be able to identify. Maybe those people are on vacation, but that's still certainly a data point that your, your SOC teams really want to be able to see. And if we can provide that in a very easy way for them to do, then why not, right? Um, so I think we've come to like another idea of, you know, what zero trust could mean short of the uh, full implementation of a beyond core uh, type uh, Google stack. And that is just thinking about your most vulnerable assets, even if they're internal, as external assets. You know, and thinking about them in the same way. That's another zero trust style of thinking uh, you know, that, you, you, that goes beyond um, you know, doing the whole shoot and match. Well, and I, like, look, like, I think that both companies internally and security teams need to be thinking about this, but vendors need to be thinking about this too, about how can they apply their, their tooling not only to you know, the external facing assets that somebody might have, but somebody that's internal. And, and that example that I just gave where it's like, look, for us, uh, the alerting structure is quite different for people that are using our, our technology on an internal application versus an external one. And we provide a lot of guidance to our customers who are using it to make sure that they are getting the most value out of it. But we've, we've had to proactively think about that right in the first place to be able to make sure that they have the use case that's covered for something internal. Got so. it. As I imagine, there's not a lot of difference in the way your product works when you're applying it internally or externally. It's not. It's more about how you could sort of actually configure the, the alerting on it or how you actually set it up in the first right. place. Because like you said, there's less noise and right. anything that happens is right. something that needs to be dealt with. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. So, so the, the way you use the product is different. Yeah, but, but, but like to your point, I think like, you know, a lot of security folks can get caught up in this concept of like, you know, we, we call it security nihilism where it's like if you don't have the full, the full gamut of the solution to this stuff, then you might as well not do it at all. Well, you know, actually making some... Um, some incremental uh, improvements in your security posture. And if that means, you know, even just getting some visibility into are some attacks happening on some of the internal applications that we're running, like that's a step forward. And it's important that people don't get bogged down from perfection um, by, by being able to get progress still. I love that idea of security nihilism. Where does that come from? Uh, first person I heard that from was Alex Stamos. Yeah. Oh, I, he was quoted earlier by somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Well, Alex is <laughs> full yeah. of quotable, Very quotable. Um, yeah, ideas. Well, that's super yeah. cool. So um, the next question I want to ask you is about portfolio pruning. And uh, yeah. I've gotten some really good interest answers here, and, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. Sure. It seems like we're in a situation in which 
cybersecurity, for most of the history of the industry, has always been additive. Mm -hmm. Every generation has new componentry for new threats, new problems. There is no new component that then takes away the need for previous capabilities. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for people to imagine taking away some of their existing capabilities because sure. then they're worried about that vulnerability you know, still existing, or they're worried about losing the visibility that they get from that, that component. Correct. And so, when are we, but on the other hand, it, it, there's no other realm of computing or technology where you don't have pruning. Uh, you know, when are we going to start pruning uh, the cybersecurity portfolio by having new solutions replace or make obsolete old solutions or old capabilities? Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree that I think it's kind of a hard problem. Um, but at, at least in our specific space, and we've seen this in, in some of the other ones as well, that, um, look, let, let's, let's use Endpoint and, and AV as an example, right? Like, well, that, that's a great example because I think every single RSA for the last 10 years, somebody's going around saying AV is dead. Sure. But then, you know, the McAfee and Symantec booths don't seem to get any smaller. Sure. And they still are on the keynote stage. Sure. So, so how dead can it be, you know? Yeah, well, and I think that there, are, there certainly are customers who will do full rip and replaces of, uh, you know, we use endpoint, endpoint technology as, as an example. But for us, it's the same thing. Like, there's a lot of people that have bought legacy web application firewall technology in the past, and they're, re they're, they're, they're buying our product, they're seeing the differences, and then uh, over time they're actually being able to completely replace their existing solutions that they had. And by the way, they might have had five or six different point solutions for all the different types of technology platforms that they're trying to protect via their WAFs, right? So they, they might literally be managing four different WAFs at the same time, and the promise of our technology that's really helpful for them is that they actually get to replace all four of those with one tool. So. I'm not saying that that's super common in the industry, but I, I think there actually really is the promise of if you have a true next generation technology that's trying to solve an existing problem that's that's been in the space for a long time, you can have some consolidation around uh, around vendors there in the first place. Um, but but you're always going to be in this position of saying, you know, <laughs> there's there's the new threat in the application, and how do we actually address that? Um, a, a, as that relates to our specific space. Examples would be container security um, and serverless security, and then service mesh is a new area uh, in security that, that that's popping up around around applications. Um, the way we've approached that is that, you know, the, the, there's certainly aspects of those things that you need to think about uh, securing and providing access to and visibility into, but a lot of it comes down to those are just technologies to run your application, and really what you're worried about is the application behind it. So. As long as we can provide a means to be able to get installed and, and protect the applications that are running in those different architectures, the architecture itself isn't inherently something brand new to be able to, uh, to attack. Um, so I think this is the thing that's, that's tough for security practitioners because they're having to sort between like, well, these, these new technologies we're adopting, so we have to get a, a container security you know, solution to solve those things. Right. I mean, yes and no, right? Um, well, like th that's the one thing that, that has the, the most powerful idea that's come out of these discussions is the idea of how can you refactor your environment, sure. your surface area, so that you can either use simpler uh, cybersecurity solutions or sure. not, or just avoid having them. Uh -huh. And so the pruning doesn't come through 
one technology making something obsolete, it comes through rethinking your, 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 the way you run your business and the way you expose assets. But, that I mean, what you, but your point, you know, I guess, to me, isn't an example of pruning. You know, you, you, when you take a web application firewall sure. and replace four other web application firewalls, you didn't really, uh, you know, simplify your environment. I mean, you, you did simplify your environment, but you didn't replace and make that whole capability unnecessary. At some point, I think, you know, it seems like that there should be a way to uh, make certain things unnecessary. It was, it was the same way in, uh, you know, uh, Automobile engines, you know, carburetors went went the way of all flesh, or, or you know, certain new technologies came along and replaced old technologies. Sure, yeah, it's I, I would just be I would caution you to think that that is a common thing that would happen because I think even the way it with with those examples, it wasn't like a, a it wasn't that it disappeared the next day. Right? Like I think, like when we look back and think about scientific and technology innovations, we like to like tell the story in the context that like one day the you know it was a, a steam engine car and the next day it was a gas engine car, but there were a bunch of small things along the way that, that that led to that. So I think like in our world when we're looking at technology innovations, we've seen so many happen so quickly that I think we're really looking for stuff to even go faster and faster and faster. But I, I just view the reality is that it's always going to be a step function approach, and those steps may may be faster now than they ever were in the past. Um, so, you know, if, is there a future where we don't need to have OAF at all? I think that's really going to come down to what other technology innovations are happening around applications, for example, Got that it. may make that irrelevant, right? Um, well, let's go to the next question, which is about, you know, cloud migration. Or well, do you have one more thing you well, want to no, say? No, no, and so, so like, like one of the examples that's actually really common right now is when people are saying, hey, we're moving, like, th that I think is exactly to your point around this is, look, when people are moving to the cloud, they're no longer managing hardware infrastructure, right? And so, an example of this, y you don't have an email server anymore that you need to protect. It's a hardware email server. You might use you know, Gmail or something as, a, uh, a, as an email system there. That actually does eliminate some pieces of what you need to be responsible for from a security perspective. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of security things that the cloud providers uh, in, in, um, in, at the network layer are actually taking responsibility for from a security perspective as well. So it doesn't mean actually that that technology goes away completely because that cloud provider is taking the responsibility. But from, from the company's perspective and from the security, like the CISO's perspective, they kind of are taking it away because they don't have yeah. to be responsible that's, for that's it. Yeah, and right? that's the level that I'm, I'm interested totally. in. Totally, right. Uh, you know, I, I, so I think it's possible. Like, we've seen that already. Well, that, and let's just go to the next question, which is so about cloud migration. And that sure. is, you know, <laughs> what sort of cybersecurity belongs in the cloud? You know, how long is it going to uh, uh, take for us to uh, have fewer uh, on-premise assets? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how is this migration going to take place? Like you said, you know, things take place incrementally. I'm trying to figure out yeah. what goes first, what goes second. Yeah. You know, uh, how, obviously this is, a, this is a, a sort of a, uh, another way of asking how will the entire migration to the cloud take place. Sure. But, um, but I think it's interesting to think of it in terms of cybersecurity, when whether or not cybersecurity can go first. Interesting. Um, so, so I think there's a bunch of different pieces there that are interesting to talk about. Um, the first thing that I've heard recently, well, just over the last couple of years, Simultaneously, you hear that people are moving really fast to the cloud, faster than people expect, and then you also hear people say, well, they're moving slower than, than, than we expect. So the question is kind of which, which one is it? And I think it's both. Um, the, the things that we've seen, 
the reason why or the speed that people have moved to the cloud is that all new projects that people are working on, like the moment that they saw the value of how fast they could spin up a new project and create a new application or new type new types of functionality and software in the cloud, then every other project that was after that, because it was so much faster, uh, they, they, they went immediately. Um, an example of that that I always love to share is from some friends of mine um, who worked at a they worked at a big bank, right? Uh, and they were talking about hey. When they wanted to build a new um, a new software application internally, they had to get a, a physical box provisioned for them in their data center. Um, and so you put a ticket in to get that box provisioned, and it literally took nine months to get a box provisioned. Like that's how long they were given guidance on. Um, when they moved to the cloud, it would it would be in minutes that they could get something up and running. And so you're literally taking out nine months of a of a, uh, a cycle around doing software development um, that you can start adding business value immediately. So that's why the adoption has been so um, so <laughs> violent is not the right word, but like so yeah. um, so fast on new projects. The real question is all the existing stuff that they have. Um, that's the harder one, right? Like there's always been a um, promise of lift and shift, I haven't necessarily seen that in most of the companies that we've been working well, with. Well, no, yet. and also it's, it's, it's a promise that the vendors love to, to encourage because you move to a lift and shift environment and then you're not optimized for the cloud and just, money's going to leak out everywhere. And it, you know, it seems to me that um, the wiser way is to, is to first automate your environment as much as possible, yeah. then understand how it could be refactored when you move to the cloud, and then when you go to the cloud, you have a highly automated environment that, that can be refactored for the new technologies. Totally. And then, then you're then you're like a cloudy, you know, efficient cloud sort of, 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 of place. I mean, I assume that you guys, your product runs to a large extent in the cloud, and you've you, yeah. you are you probably have many people worried about how to optimize that bill. We, yeah, we we do. Um, what's it so? Our, our, the back end of our, our, our product runs in the cloud. Um, there, there's an aspect of the product that gets installed on our customers' um, environments that then talks to our cloud, cloud back end, right, asynchronously. And what's interesting is we kind of assumed that the majority of the installs were going into cloud infrastructure for our customers. It's about 50-50. It's about, and, and we work with really like, you know, forward thinking, a lot of times startups, uh, a lot of times early companies, and still a lot of them have hardware technology that they have us installed on. So. I, the, the key for us has always been flexibility. And that vendors that are in this space from a security perspective, you can't just think about how do we move people off like a cloud, you know, off the uh, on-prem stuff and, and, and into the cloud faster. You gotta understand how do we actually support both of those things really indefinitely. Right, um, right. Because, because if you don't, you're just gonna become another point solution for another point, point solution technology that they have that's an architecture. And you know, it might be 10 years before some of the, the hardware stuff actually eventually moves into the cloud, and maybe it never does either. Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about is the bonus, bonus question. Bonus questions? The bonus questions. We made it to the bonus questions. So, um, I gotta be more long-winded. <laughs> there, there's three bonus questions. Yep. Uh, one is uh, about ops discipline. And, okay. and that, the idea here is that, I guess I'm asking why this doesn't happen, because everybody agrees that it should happen, and that is, Instead of buying the next cybersecurity solution, why not improve your ops discipline? You know, meaning uh, better configuration management, patch management, asset inventory, automation, as we were just discussing. Yep. Uh, it seems like everybody that I've talked to says, yeah, that's a, that would be a good investment. Instead of, for most people, there's room for improvement and it would actually have a meaningful impact on their cybersecurity posture. Sure. So, 
Do you agree with that? And then if, 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 if why is everybody agreeing and why is, why is, why is why it not people, happening? Yeah, exactly. Why is it not happening? <laughs> Developers like building things. Um, and, and they're not, I mean, this is the same question, which is like, oh, we're identifying all the bugs in our apps. Why aren't they getting fixed? Well, if you really think bugless applications are a possibility, then, uh, I mean, right. uh, I, I, got some, I got some news for you. Right. Right? Like, so I, I think that the, the difference here and, and the, the, um, the hope that I have for the future um, is that DevOps, um, uh, that's really starting to incorporate security more than ever um, in the past. Like there's more interest from developers and DevOps groups and operations people in management, maintaining, uh, understanding the security posture and actually taking responsibility for it than I've, never, uh, than I've ever seen in the past. And what, what's going to come along with that is, um, is actually focusing on, on, on doing the remediation of those steps. The problem for us, and, and this comes from our experience before we started the company, again, we were in-house at a company called Etsy running, running the security programs there, that we really learned talking to our, our DevOps counterparts on this stuff was, if you're a security person, you're like the tinfoil guy that's, um, you know, you're the uh, super paranoid, right? And you're always telling them, hey, there's all these vulnerabilities and they could be exploited at any time. And, and yeah, that's true, but you know, the response back from your engineering groups is by and large gonna be like, well, you paid somebody to get a pen test or you paid a bug bounty person to go find that thing in the code. Like, these are all theoretical risks. They're not actual risks to them. The, the way that we change the conversation with them, and I think the, real, the, the, the thing that security really under, needs to understand to be able to change this conversation is you gotta take that theoretical risk and move it into a practical conversation around what's actually happening. And for us, the way we did that was uh, we were able to show real-time visibility into where attackers were attacking our applications, get that information directly into the hands of the development groups and the operations teams to say, hey, you know, this theoretical area where we found all these bugs, well, 80% of all of our attacks are happening, that are happening right now, and you can see them, are going to that part of the application. So they're they're desperately looking for, these attackers are desperately looking for the, the problems that we already know that are in these applications. That made it very easy for them to say like, okay, <laughs> this is not a theoretical risk. Right. This is an actual attack that's happening right now. We can see the, the, you know, the, the, um, uh, the attacks that are happening uh, in, in these various uh, form fields on these pages. We need to go. We need to go fix these things now. Um, so, got it. So, so the idea is that if you could somehow show the, the cost of, of of lack of operational discipline, that would be motivating. It, it, it's the cost, but then it's also the real threat, right? So, if you're sitting here saying like, hey, you know, if we just patched everything um, and we patched it all time and we got the basics down, like. That needs to happen regardless, right? Like, there's so many benefits that we're gonna get like out of doing that, and the more we can automate those things, the better. But the question is then gonna be like, well, how do you change behavior? Because you said if we're all sitting here saying we agree that that's the right thing, then then the real problem is well, behavior's not changing based on what we agree to be the right thing. And the best thing we saw to be able to change behavior is to show the real threat versus the theoretical one. Well, that's the next question. Is uh, it's about cyber culture, and then how do you? get cyber security education tra training to be made a part of everyday life in a company. Because you know you don't want the yeah. only the security auditor to be the one complaining about the, the post-it note with passwords on the sure. computer. You want everybody to be complaining because that's a bad thing. It's gonna hurt us all. Yep. It's gonna hurt the mission of the company. And so I guess what your answer, your first answer would be show the harm. Sure. 
and show that the harm is real. Yeah, you gotta make you gotta make it visible, right? So so we learned this lesson at Etsy because Etsy was going through the lessons of DevOps, right? And so they, they were asking the same question, which was, look, our developers wanna move really fast with how they're shipping code. How do we get them to take some responsibility over their operational components of the code that they're launching so that we can actually like do this stuff uh, together and really work hand in hand and have the development groups and the operations groups work well together? Well, the way that they did it were two things. One, provide visibility into what the operational impact was when, when the developer wanted to launch that code so that, hey, we're gonna launch it, and then you immediately have graphs that show you like, hey, did you impact some, some tool here to, to break something in the application? If they had the visibility, then they also could go and fix those things. But to create that visibility in the first place, you needed to, like the ops teams had to make some tools to make it super easy for the developers, right? So our philosophy around this stuff is, one, if you want other people in the organization to actually take responsibility of security, you gotta invest a bit in tooling, but you have to make it so easy that they're almost embarrassed that they don't use it, right? That they don't utilize that in the first place, but then you have to make that, that, that information that you're giving to them useful so that they can take action on it. And if it's, if, you know, in the context again of ours, we'll just use the example as, if we're showing the developer this is an actual attack that's happening on your code, they can take action on that and say, okay, Yep, that, there's a bug in my code. I'll go fix the bug right now. And you thwart the attacker right then. Like you, you, you solve the problem immediately and it's incredibly satisfying for the developer and certainly satisfying for the security person because they've been asking them to solve this bug right. for the last two years, right? So that's, uh, yeah, that's, I, I think that's yeah. the way you actually change that behavior. So now last question mm -hmm. uh, is about cyber insurance. A lot of CIOs, CTOs and CISOs, you know, are being forced to buy cyber insurance for various reasons. Sure. They don't, so a lot of them don't like it. They, a lot of them don't like it for good reasons because cyber insurance is new insurance. Caveats. It's, it's off, yeah. got a lot of escape hatches. Right. Uh, there's lots of ways not to pay. Uh, uh, and um, uh, and, it, and the, it, what it insures is not necessarily the, the loss, but, but like it's ancillary costs, like forensic costs or um, uh, legal costs or, or other costs. It doesn't necessarily insure against the loss of whatever the attack was, sure, yeah. the business continuity loss. Yep. So, uh, on, the, on the other hand, few people say that you're going to be victorious arguing uh, your way out of this one. So, what would you recommend for a CISO to do to make the best of it? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, the compliance side pieces of what they're going to have to do or not have to do, um, you know, that that's, there's, it's not very interesting, I think, to, to debate those things. Um, I, I think that the thing that is critical for CISOs to, um, to be thinking about is uh, security has always kind of been in a position of trying to um, uh, be the ones responsible for risk within an organization. And so they want to say no to everything to make it so that you just kind of reduce risk as much as possible. Um, getting away from the culture of saying no, but saying, hey, we, we can enable you to do the things that you need to do on the business side, um, and, and here's the ways that we can help you reduce risk in the context of that. Um, I think, A, that's, that's an, important, uh, an important way to, to think about it and approach it in the first place. The, the second thing I'd say is something that I heard, um, heard from a couple different folks, but the, the former CISO and the, uh, the current head of risk for, for Goldman Sachs says this a lot, his name's Phil Venables, he talks about if you're bringing security to the business um, and, and you're, you're trying to say, hey, it's important to actually add these things to the business, you gotta start thinking about how security can actually help the business do their jobs better. Um, and how does it add something to, to the security team, or I'm sorry, to the, to the rest of the business to, to be able to achieve the business goals that they have. So 
that can mean different things for different types of security measures, but it changes that context into thinking, look, security is just insurance anyway, right? It's just risk reduction for us anyway. Well, no, it can actually be a driver of value instead of just a risk reductor, uh, or sorry, a risk reducer uh, w within the organization itself. Well, that's a good note to end on. Thank sure. you so much, Andrew. I yep. really appreciated talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me.